0: Like the other night, this is not preaching, but I would like to read something. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Uh, I need to tell you that the authorized version uh, translated the Greek literally which says, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, with favoritism, very important. Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show attention to the man wearing fine clothes, and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, uh, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world, to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom, he promised those who love him. But you have insulted the poor. Let me pause. In the Greek, it is singular, petokon, poor man. The ESV translates it, the poor man. And if you didn't know that, you would just think he's talking about poor people generally. But now he's using an illustration. The poor man. You've got an ESV. You'll see it. Is not the rich among you? Is it not the rich who are exploding you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law, found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of the breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not Murder, And if you commit adultery but do not murder, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful and is still talking about the poor man. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? We'll stop there. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the teaching of this, his most holy and infallible word, as we look also at this in the light of the great man of God with all of his faults, Martin Luther. May we pray. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your spirit to rest upon every mind for cleansing, for clear thinking, and that their perception of what I say will be received, heard as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument enabled me to be very, very clear, very, very simple. And if I have got it right, let me be humble about it and not arrogant. And may this be a life-changing word and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've been looking at Martin Luther all week. Once I brought in Calvin, the bishop just brought in Calvin, and I shall do that a little bit today because Calvin helps us to understand Luther than reading Luther by itself. What we're talking about this week mostly is justification by faith. It's at the heart of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. It is what God's elect are chosen to. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. It is what, when you think it through, proves the eternal security of the believer because Paul goes on to say, whom he justified, he glorified. It is what largely separates Protestants from Catholics It is an assumption teaching of all Protestants, no matter what denomination, justification by faith, and largely associated with Martin Luther, who died at the age of 64. Luther did not discover this teaching. He rediscovered it, but for him it was a discovery. And he got it all from Paul, mostly from reading Romans and Galatians. He loved Galatians most. He called it his Katie Von Burra. He lectured through Galatians three times. Well, now, it's hard for us to believe that this teaching largely lay behind a cloud for 1,500 years. Uh, But the amazing thing is that 500 years later, we are celebrating Martin Luther. What is clear in the writings of Paul, it is not inconsistent with most of the church fathers, whether you look at the Eastern fathers like Chrysostom or Athanasius, uh, the Western fathers, Ambrose, St. Augustine, but strange as it may seem, the issue just didn't come up. Uh, Adolf Harnack, the German Church historian, Riley observed that Marcion, who was a heretic, was the first to understand Paul. But then he misunderstood him. And because Marcion was such a gross heretic, and though he did understand Paul in an amazing way, Marcion's understanding of Paul now was under a cloud, and nobody trusted that view because it was Marcion. So people so feared him that uh, they stayed away from that kind of thinking. Marcion was a Gnostic. But the irony is, he probably did understand Paul. Now, soteriology did not emerge in the early church history as the issue uh, that we would give it today. Why? You may ask, why was it that it took 1,500 years? Well, for one thing, in the first century, the issue was defending the faith over against the Caesar. Uh, If you confess Christ as Lord, uh, you could be burnt at the stake. So baptism in those days sent a signal that one was prepared to die for Jesus Christ. That was the issue. Uh, Caesar was not Lord, Jesus was. Uh, Then the early heresy, Gnosticism, was beginning to take over. And people like Chrysostom fought it. And some Gnostics were prepared to affirm Christ's deity, but not his humanity. And they were called docetists, from the Greek word dokeo, to appear. They said Christ only appeared to have a body, but it was not really fleshly. And so 1 John is much about this, confessing Jesus in the flesh. And so that began to take center stage. Emphasizing then uh, the human side of Jesus. Uh, You may not realize this, but the uh, Apostles' Creed was actually drawn up to fight Gnosticism, not emphasizing the deity of Jesus, but his actual humanity. But then there's another interesting thing. It has been shown that the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers, and even many of the church fathers did not have much teaching on the doctrine of grace. I used to think that if you want to understand John, for example, uh, find those who are closest to John. And the further back in history you go, you get right to the New Testament, that's where you're going to get good understanding. Wrong. You take... uh, Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, he was burned at the stake and it was a glorious martyrdom and the glory of God uh, was manifest. But if you read Polycarp, you become disillusioned that what did he really believe? Ignatius, who was a martyr, he said, let the lions chew me to bits that I may win Christ. And I think, oh, I want to read what he's got to say when you read what he's got to say, there's not much there. Uh, Thomas Torrance, who became professor of dogmatics at Edinburgh, uh, did his doctorate at Basel on the doctrines of grace in the apostolic fathers. And you know what he concluded? There wasn't any. There wasn't any doctrine of grace. They just didn't teach it. Christianity became very moralistic and emphasis on being good and godly and holy and because of that it became to be an assumption that this is what christianity is it wasn't until you get to saint augustine that you find a doctrine of soteriology but he emphasized sin predestination salvation But didn't really tackle justification by faith. So it's strange that it would go 1,500 years. Uh, But then, by the time Luther came, as we've been seeing this week, the prevailing teachers were first, the Bible must be hidden from ordinary people. The doctrine of purgatory, not in the Bible, not in the early church fathers, but around the sixth century began to emerge. eventually became a doctrine, then the doctrine of penance. And then they taught faith to be assent to the doctrines of the church. That was the way they would define faith, assent, mental assent to what the church teaches. and place uh, faith plus works became the way of salvation. Well, now, John Calvin, lived 20 years after Luther. And when you grow up believing something, uh, it's hard to be objective about your own teaching. I'm sure I'm that way about myself. Uh, And Luther took justification by faith alone so seriously that it became personal for him. I mean, he became brittle and sensitive and... People were afraid to to say anything to him. Uh, You heard in the previous lecture, uh, views of the Eucharist. Uh, Luther believed in the real presence of Christ in the the bread and the wine. Uh, He said he rejected transubstantiation, uh, and he came up with what he called consubstantiation, but it takes a genius to know what is the difference and no one has ever made it very, very clear what the difference is. But he didn't want to say he believed in transubstantiation. But then, as we heard earlier, Zwingli comes along and says, The Lord's Supper is a memorial. This do in remembrance of me. It was John Calvin who, halfway between, emphasized that the spiritual presence of Christ is in the bread and the wine, And it is not a memorial where you feel nothing. It's not transubstantiation where you think this is really Jesus you're looking at. But you feast on Christ spiritually, as we were told. We're brought up into the heavenlies. And something ought to happen. You ought to feel something, said Calvin. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the Lord's Supper. And Calvin was so convinced that he had got it right, that he wrote a letter to Martin Luther. He called Luther my father in the gospel and explained his view, fully convinced that Luther would say thank you. That does it. That settles it. That's clear. But Philip Melanchthon, who was sort of Luther's successor, read the letter, intercepted it, wrote Calvin back to say, I did not give it to the aging Luther. He's frail, sickly. He couldn't cope with any kind of information like this. So Luther never saw Calvin's letter. But what Calvin wanted to do was to make some suggestions. And one thing is he didn't want faith to be seen as meritorious. But rather, faith was the instrument. And so Calvin said there are three causes of justification. The instrumental cause, that's faith. But there's the meritorious cause, that's the blood of Jesus. And there's the efficient cause, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. So what Calvin did without rejecting anything that Luther taught, brought in this profound, but I think clear, explanation. And this is what Paul taught and what Paul meant when he talked about being saved by the faith of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to spend all day on this, but at the beginning of James chapter 2, James, and you read it in the Greek, He talks about having the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why would he say it like that? Most translators say faith in Jesus Christ, and they miss it. They miss it entirely. What was James's point? Well, you need to know, if you didn't, James is the brother of Jesus, technically half-brother. Paul called James the brother of our Lord. James knew the Sermon on the Mount backwards and forwards. In fact, the book of James, you can open it and read it and have the Sermon on the Mount next to you and you can see James pulling from the Sermon on the Mount all the time. You cannot imagine Jesus saying to a rich person, oh, I want you to sit here. But James knew this was beginning to happen in the church in Jerusalem. This was written around 48 A.D., as far as we know, probably the earliest written letter in the New Testament. And James could see that the church, they were very discouraged. The church in Jerusalem was not growing. They were looked at as as the uh, uh, low class of Jerusalem. They had inferiority complex. And if Somebody wealthy were to show up. It would give them a little stature, they thought. And James could see this on the horizon that the people in Jerusalem thought if only we could have somebody in our church, uh, if uh, a billionaire, a Bill Gates, a person who drives a Mercedes or Bentley, if he were to come and all the other Jews see. That, oh, look who's going to the church in Jerusalem. Have you heard? Oh, yeah, it's the, it's the chairman of uh, BT. It's the chairman of BC, BBC. Oh, really, really? There, there's just a feeling of the Jews in Jerusalem. And James says, please don't even think like that. Jesus wouldn't talk like that. Have the faith of our Lord Jesus, his faith, how he lived, without favoritism now unless you think that that is just an accidental time when jesus could be referred to as having faith paul referred to the faith of jesus in the same way that calvin would call, talk about the meritorious cause look at galatians 2:16 it's best read in the authorized version So I'm reading from the NIV, but I'm going to actually read it as if it were the King James. When Paul says, knowing that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by the faith of Jesus, the meritorious cause. So we too have put our faith in Christ, that's the instrumental cause, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, the meritorious cause. And so, Paul would later say, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And that way, faith in itself is not meritorious. It's the faith of Jesus. Well, now, this is the same language that he uses when he begins chapter 2. And he talks about the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've seen already a little bit... uh, that Martin Luther was not perfect. In fact, there are times when you cringe, and you think, oh, why did he have to say that? Uh, He actually met Zwingli, and they uh, got together at a a well-known town in Germany, and they met, uh, and people thought, this is wonderful. It's gonna bring the reformers together But it didn't work. And (laughs) I don't need to tell you this, but it's true. You might as well know. Luther said, Zwingli's God is my devil. That's Luther. Sorry about that. He wasn't perfect. And uh, as we saw also earlier this week, uh, it's so sad. He did not esteem Jews and said, Horrible things about them. And uh, I'm sorry about this. But there was a, a, a little history of continuity. It goes back to, I think, Oregon, origin. He was a heretic. But he made a big deal that the Jews crucified Jesus. And Christians should not like Jews. Now, Luther should have known better. Because Book of Romans... It changed his life. Romans 1, 16. To the Jew first. Also to the Gentile. Luther should have seen it. But oftentimes when we get obsessed with a particular teaching, and that teaching can be right. If we're not careful, it'll give us blind spots. And uh, uh, so that's the way it is. And then you've got, at the present time, another extreme in American Christianity more than over here, where Jews now are extolled beyond what they ever should have. And that is, there are those who are saying Jews get a second chance because they're God's chosen people. And I remember when I was having my correspondence with Rabbi David Rosen. He's Sir David Rosen. The, the queen, two years ago, gave him a knighthood. And he and I are friends, and I wrote a book with him. And he gave it the title, not me, The Christian and the Pharisee. In fact, when I first met him, he was talking about Pharisees, you know, bragging on them. I said, wait, wait, wait. Do I hear you right? Oh, by the way, are you calling yourself a Pharisee? Oh, yes. You, you say that with a straight face? He said, the New Testament didn't give the Pharisees a good press. And so he's proud to be a Pharisee. So he wanted to call the book, The Christian and the Pharisee. I don't know if you've got them for sale here or not. Uh, My letters to him and his reply, and I I try to convert him. I fail. I still pray for him every day. Uh, But he once said in one of the letters to me, he said, well, look, R.T., if you're right, uh, and Jesus is the Messiah, I get another chance and I wrote back like a flash. That is not biblical at all. But he'd heard this. And so where you've got Luther hating the Jews, you've got some American fundamentalists now saying, oh, everything Israel does is right. Wrong. They make mistakes all the time. Big ones. You shouldn't uh, extol them. And they don't get a second chance to be judged just like anybody else. Well, on my website recently, because I wanted to talk about the 95 Theses uh, on, on my Twitter. Uh, some of, uh, I've got 13 followers, maybe they're all here today. Uh, <laughs> you you uh, will know I've been talking about Luther. I called him my hero, and boy, the mail went back. And I said, oh, sorry, sorry, I've... He, he wasn't perfect. The things he said about Jews, very, very sad. But then there was another blind spot. And that is his view of this epistle of James. Now, you can kind of understand it. He had given up everything for his view of justification by faith alone. He was prepared to go to the stake. And if he hadn't been kidnapped by friends, they would have killed him. All for justification by faith alone. But then someone comes along and says, just a minute, Dr. Luther, we seem to recall that James talks about being justified by works. And Luther called James, the book of James, an epistle of straw. A straw epistle. He Allowed it in the canon. But a year before he died. Said. We won't teach that book here. He was so threatened by it. He was so threatened by it. Uh, So. That's the history. That. Luther didn't like. The book of James. Well. uh, I. I. felt led many years ago to preach from James. It was after I'd been at the chapel a year. I felt strongly led, but I thought, no. I'm not going to preach on James until I understand James 2.14. And here's what James 2.14 says. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, Can such faith save him? Well, the answer is no. And that's why Luther didn't like James. And and James goes on to say uh, that you can see how Abraham was justified by works and then Rahab the harlot also. And so... James just wasn't appreciated at all. He was threatened by it, and uh, he hadn't sorted it out. And now I feel led to preach on James, and I'm not going to do it until I understand James 2.14. I remember Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to say, he's not going to do Romans until he understands Romans 6. But when he says, I understand Romans 6, I'll start at the beginning and go through it. Well, that day came, and he went through Romans. The problem was, I wasn't getting anywhere with James 2.14. I know what all the commentaries say. I've read all of them, if you'd imagine. They all say basically one thing. We are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. It always has works to show it's really faith. And so all James is doing is saying that if you're justified by faith, show works. But I thought, well, that's not what James is saying. Well, if they ask, well, what is he saying? I would say, I don't know, but it's not that. Well, what is it? It's not that. But well, it's got to be that. And then I felt this strong impulse. I, I'd like to think it was the Holy Spirit. Start at chapter 1, verse 1. Don't worry, wait till you get to verse 14 of chapter 2, and I'll give you the reason he said that. Well, I started at 1 1, went through James, and it was several months before we got to 214. Now, when we came to 213, I finished the sermon and was no closer. To understanding James 2.14, and I felt horrible. Whatever am I going to do? Do I have to just quote the commentaries? Because in my heart, they they don't have it right at all. But on the Monday morning, before the Sunday, because I always started my Sunday preparation on Mondays when I was at Westminster Chapel. And on Monday morning before noon, I had the most wonderful breakthrough. I would say, in my 25 years at London, in London, and I would even say, probably, I'm now 82 years old, I would think it's the greatest insight of my lifetime. When it all became so clear that James is not talking about assurance of salvation at all. He's not talking about assurance. He's not saying to the believer, you need to show works to show that you're saved, but that's the way everybody took it. And I saw that's not what James is saying. He's not talking about personal assurance of salvation or whether you know you're saved. He wasn't saying that at all. For faith without works... Does that save somebody else? No. So, we ask, aren't we urged to have works to demonstrate that we have faith? Yes. But James does not say to prove anything to ourselves. After all, the greatest freedom is having nothing to prove. If we are already persuaded we don't need works to prove to ourselves what is genuine, I know whether or not I am relying on Christ for my salvation. I don't need works to prove to myself that I'm saved. James is saying the world out there does not know that. They cannot read our minds. They cannot examine our hearts. They only know what they see in us. Therefore, we need to demonstrate our good works to reach others. Jesus taught that we should let our light shine before people that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We therefore demonstrate good works, one, in order to obey our Lord and glorify our Father, and second, to demonstrate that we really do care about our witness to the world. They need to see something in us that will make them want to have what we have. Well, as I said, Luther disliked the book of James because his reading of it, thinking that James is talking about assurance of salvation, how to know you're saved, his reading of it contradicted Paul's teaching of justification by faith. And that's because Luther did not interpret James 2.14 in the context of the preceding verses of that chapter. And the truth is, Luther was so wrong. There is no contradiction at all. If only knew that James was Luther's friend. First, Luther needed to realize that in James chapter 2, verse 6... The reference to the poor was to the poor man. Potokon. Accusative, masculine, singular. And then when you look at the word him, James 2.14, Can faith save him? It's accusative, masculine, singular. Now, I've had someone check out German versions of James 2.6, the way the NIV reads, you have insulted the poor, meaning poor people generally. And verse five talks about poor people generally, the, the world. And even the King James Version says, you have dishonored the poor, meaning people generally. But then what I realized the hymn couldn't be referring to the man who says, I have faith. That right there convinced me that it can't be referring to the man himself because the him was accusative, masculine, singular. And lo and behold, you go back to verse 6, accusative, masculine, singular. You've despised, James says, the poor man. And from that moment, he's using the poor man as an illustration People think that James has changed the subject. He not only has not changed the subject, he's talking about the poor man right to the end of chapter 2. He never changes the subject from the poor man. He's just using him as an illustration. Keep poor man in mind as you read it. That's why I read all of that. And so, Martin Luther disliked this book of James because his reading of it contradicted justification by faith. And one can appreciate that. And all those who want to say, James is just saying to show good works, uh, they're they're doing their best, but then I want to say to them, just a minute, are you saying in order to prove that you're a Christian, you've got to look after the poor? How many of you look after the poor, by the way? Because this is where evangelicals fail more than anybody. In fact, uh, Carl F.H. Henry wrote a book many years ago called The Uneasy Conscience of Evangelicals. Because they're the last to take care of the poor. God raises up the Salvation Army to do that. But Evangelicals, they say, oh well, we, we give to charity. And if that's a fruit of being saved, well they're not saved. But that would be the way they would interpret it. Well, Luther needed to realize that the reference to the poor man in James 2, verse 6 was the main focus of the second chapter. Starting out with verse 1, the faith of Jesus, how how would he treat the poor? Would he be favorite, uh, show favoritism uh, to a rich man who comes to church? Say, oh, (laughs) we're so glad to see you. And then James raises the question, You've been trying to show partiality to the rich. Has it worked? No. They blasphemed that name by which you called. Whenever you try to reach rich people, you'll scare them off. James says, welcome the poor. Don't try to build a middle class church in Jerusalem. Jesus went for the poor. He cared about the poor. The common people heard him gladly. And he's rebuking the Jerusalem church lest they try to Impress the world. Jesus would never do that. And so he rebukes them. You people in Jerusalem have despised the poor man. And then if we had time, I'd just do the whole exposition of those next verses. But then when he comes to verse 14, he says, can faith save him, the poor man? Certainly won't. What will? Ah, show that you love him. Don't just say, God bless you. Be warmed in the fire. Oh no, give him a place to live. Make room for him. That's the way you're going to win him. Last week I gave a lecture on D.L. Moody in Massachusetts. I learned a lot about Moody. He was born a very poor man. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with D.L. Moody, and he got a job selling shoes in a store in Boston. And the owner of the shoe store put his hand on D.L. Moody's shoulder and says, God loves you. D.L. Moody said, I can still feel his hand on my shoulder. And I don't know what all he said, but I would have done anything he did. And I prayed to receive Jesus that day. It ends up leading a million souls to Christ. You see, you don't win them by saying, God bless you. In fact, when I first met Yasser Arafat, I made a mistake in the first 10 minutes. I said, Jesus loves you. He went like this. And I saw that's not going to work. Fortunately, God overruled. And an hour and a half later, we were still talking. I said, Rais, I love you. And tears filled his eyes. He followed me out to the car, begged me to come back. I visited him five times. In my book, It Ain't Over Till It's Over, I don't know if we have it here or not. I make a point. I will not be surprised to see Arafat in heaven. You're not going to win the poor man by platitudes and by your being theologically sound. James says, you say you believe in one God. Good. So does the devil. What's going to make an impact on the poor man? Only one thing. You show that you love him. That's the way you save him. That's what I believe. James is saying, and it's so obvious And I promise you tonight. Read James chapter 2 and remember him means poor man. The rest of the chapter just reads by itself. One other thing. The word justification is sometimes translated vindication. As a matter of fact, it's the same Greek word used in 1 Timothy 3.16 where Paul said Jesus was justified in the Spirit. say, what is that? All modern versions say he was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindication is the right word in 1 Timothy 3.16. That's the right word to use from then on. Abraham was vindicated. Rahab the harlot, vindicated. This is not the way they were saved. It's a demonstration of what faith combined with works will do. Well, I can see that my time has gone. Uh, I will say this that uh, I went out on a limb. It was the last time I ever had a a morning with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones because he became ill after that. For four years, I visited with him every Thursday for two hours. And that was the day when on the Monday I had this breakthrough. And on Thursday when I saw him, I thought, wonder what he will say. And when I finished, He looked at me, the sweetest words I think I could ever hear him say. He said, you've convinced me. Several months later, I get a letter from Michael Eaton who I barely knew wrote me and said, I've just read the Westminster record where you brought out your view of James 2.14. He says, You, I think, don't know how right you are. Translate the Greek back into Hebrew, it's even clearer. And he told me later that my teaching on James 2.14 not only changed his life, he was pastor of a Baptist church in the poorest part of Johannesburg. He says, from that day, I opened my church to black people. And I was never the same again. If Martin Luther had heard this way of putting it, would he have felt differently about James? You tell me. When we get to heaven, we'll ask him. Heavenly Father, take this word and apply it by your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The other thing I wanted to
1: say is a question, which is, I'm sure, obvious, the answer is obvious. But, you know, earlier you were saying how that when you compare James' teaching with Jesus' teaching, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, everything becomes clear so, would you say that James's teaching in chapter two corresponds to the teaching of Jesus, or, or very close to it, where he says, "Let your light exactly. so shine Matthew before Basics. men exactly. that they may see exactly. your they may see your good works and they glorify"? your father in heaven. So that is how you are justified by works. You are vindicated, vindicated. declared yeah. righteous or seen to be consistent in your claim and your behavior by other people.
0: See, I, I know one thing, that this understanding of James does not contradict Paul at all. No, doesn't even come close. They cohere, they're perfect. And also, um, see, where,
1: what's a very strong interpretation or leads us into the interpretation that James is talking about faith uh, is evidenced uh, necessarily by good works in order for us to be assured that we have true faith. That interpretation is these two statements, the devils believe and they tremble, which is a kind of false or intellectual non-saving faith, plus the, the point where it says faith without works is dead, meaning it's not real, it's not faith that saves, rather than as you're teaching that faith without works is not fruitful and productive. That's what it means. Okay. Yeah. Would you like to just say a bit more about that?
0: Well, I, I think I've said it. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I don't know how to say it more clearly. I thought of a story this morning that will illustrate this. Uh, my friend Arthur Blessed said he'd been witnessing till two o'clock in the morning and he couldn't wait to get home. He was so tired. He's driving home And he sees a man sitting on the curb in Sunset Strip in Hollywood. And Arthur said, Lord, bless that poor man. And he he started to go home. And Arthur said, can't do that. Made a U-turn, came all the way back, pulled over, stopped his car, went and talked to the man. Says, get in the car with me takes him to his house, feeds him. He lived there for the next several days, led him to the Lord. He becomes a Christian, a pastor of a church, and Arthur was with him on his deathbed when he could barely speak and just said to Arthur, Thank you. That would have never happened if Arthur just said, God bless you. Jesus loves you. They want to feel it. And that is the point James is making. And reach out to the poor man. Start with the poor. And uh, you see, the, the founder of the Salvation Army Uh, William Booth, said, go for the poor and the rich will come and help you. But you try to reach the rich, you'll you'll scare them off. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, how far do you
1: you think he understood what you're saying? Because it seems to me, even his excellent book on discipleship and, and, and the terminology that comes out of, you know, cheap grace comes out of all of that. It seems that so many people who, mis- who confused James are the first to attack genuine salvation by grace through faith alone teaching as antinomian or cheap grace. I mean, Bonhoeffer in, p- in well, particular, well, because bon- he's so praised, well, and yet I think he's misunderstood that point.
0: Okay, Bonhoeffer, what he meant by cheap grace was those a part of the state church in Germany, which was Lutheran, and they're saved by faith. And they were all bowing to Hitler. And he said, it's cheap grace. They're just saying, you know, they're in the church. They're saved. Cheap grace. That was what he was against. And uh, he stood against Hitler. And in case you don't know, uh, three days after Bonhoeffer was hung, gave his life, the war ended <laughs> three days later. if he, They just kept him three days more. He'd would have lived. His uh, His objection to cheap grace was the people in the state church of Germany that felt no need to take a stand against Hitler.
1: But then people quote him, misquote him out of context and say that what you've been teaching today is that you're saved by faith alone and that it's not about trying to demonstrate your faith through your good works in order to have assurance, in order to retain your salvation, or order to persevere. That is cheap grace, yeah. which I think it's, it's the cheapness in that accusation is a cheap understanding of Bonhoeffer.
0: Okay, John Calvin. Here's a good example. I, my thesis at Oxford was on Calvin and the Puritans, and I, I, I've never tried to count how many, but I think I've probably read a hundred of the Puritans. Every single one of them, with the exception of John Cotton, every one of them interpreted two, Peter 1.10, which says, give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. Every one of them says to make sure you're saved. give all diligence to give your calling and election sure to be sure that you're really saved John Calvin said that's not what it means at all he says it doesn't mean sure to ourselves it says give proof of your election for the world to see that's the difference you don't do it to say oh I think maybe I'm saved today I had temptation and I said no thank you Jesus I believe I'm saved No, no. You look at Christ, said Calvin, who's the mirror of our election. That's how you know you're saved. But we want to give demonstration. I don't want the world to be able to turn against the Lord because of my unholy life. But I'm not doing it to convince myself that I'm saved. I'm doing it to win you.
1: And the the converse of that is when you see somebody and see see them doing something and behaving in a certain way and claiming to be a christian and we say you cannot possibly be a christian and do that is that the uh, inverted side of the same trap
0: well the thing is you don't know the uh don't tell the story in the middle of the ball game yeah Uh, a person may not act like a christian uh i have Times in my life where I would not want you to see a video replay of me. And if you would hear the way I have talked to somebody on the telephone that just started working for British Airways day before yesterday, and they don't know what they're doing, and I lose my temper over the phone, and if you'd heard me, you'd say, you're not a Christian to talk like that. And uh, I've been times uh, when I wasn't a perfect father to T.R. I gave, it, I gave T.R. every reason not to be here today. I've, I've not been a good father. Uh, and uh, there have been spots in my life I, I don't want you to know about. But I've been saved the whole time. I wouldn't want to go by my works to convince me. I know I'm saved. I'm looking at Jesus. I just believe it. That was Luther. That was Luther. But what happened was... In the 17th century, and I said this night before last, the Puritans come along, they affirmed Luther, oh yes, justification by faith alone, but then they said, how do you know you have faith? Well, that thought didn't enter Luther's mind. He thought, I don't need to know I've got faith, I'm looking at Jesus. Calvin, same way, he didn't even prove it. he had faith. But the Puritans said, you may have a spurious faith. You may have, you may be a counterfeit. You may be those in Hebrews chapter 6. You've tasted the word of God. Uh, but you're a counterfeit. And uh, the result was that the 17th century Christians, you talk about being sad at the end of a sermon. They didn't know whether they were saved at all. And William Perkins, the fountainhead of English Puritanism. My, my thesis is called... Uh, the nature of saving faith from William Perkins to the Westminster Assembly. William Perkins went to his grave not knowing whether he was saved. That wouldn't happen to Luther. because Once you start saying, do I have real faith? And you think, oh, I thought I did, but maybe I don't. Well, have you turned from every known sin? Mm, oh, that's a tough one. I thought yesterday I was saved, but... Not so sure. You see what I'm coming up with? People, if you you are going to make works the ground of your assurance, how will you ever know you have enough works that qualify you now to say you're saved? I'm against that teaching. I stood against it from the first day I went to Westminster Chapel to this minute. I could say a lot more, but... Let other people well, how about um,
1: uh, letting us know uh, your, your commentary two volume commentary on James yes, uh, the teachings obviously in there, Yep. any other book where you highlight this particularly all of them okay read <laughs> read all of his books I know we have we have a copy of James, but one of the things uh, I'd like to really encourage everybody here, particularly those who are in leadership, cell leadership or, or any other form of leadership and position of teaching, influencing others, get to grips with this. Find out whether RT is right. Check it out. Check the books. Read it through. Because if he's right, and I believe he is, it will change your life and you will have an understanding of grace through faith alone that is not fully understood even today by some of the most prominent teachers who are the modern, days, modern day heirs of the Puritans In other way wonderfully, wonderfully reformed but have missed this one point. Yep. And there's a generation of people who want to pick them up and it's already started because while we do not have hundreds of copies of your book on James. We do have hundreds of copies of Shut Up and Show Me, which is Bruce Atkinson's interpretation and take on this very same thing. And as you know, Bruce was heavily influenced by your teaching and also interaction with you. And it is a bold study of James and so much of what Artie has said is, 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 is produced here by another generation of teachers. I want you to get that copy and
0: enjoy reading it.